Hi, I'm Ron Mars, writer of Witchblade and Artifacts and Magdalena and most everything else that Top Cow publishes. And you're listening to Funny Books with Aaron and Paul. a professional, Paul. I told you this. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) One of the reasons we were excited to talk to you tonight is just because, you know, we've been fans of your work for for a long time. Uh, You know, I'm loving the Top Cow stuff. The work that I've been reading from you goes back way back when, you know, I loved your run on Green Lantern. And, uh, you know, I I love what you've done with the Top Cow universe. Well, thanks. I haven't, you know, I haven't had a real job in about 20 years. So, uh, (laughs) you know, yay for me. One of our uh, favorite Green Lanterns over here at Funny Books, Theron and Polly, is Kyle Rayner. I wanted to see if you could chat with us a little bit about creating Kyle for DC and what that what the transition from Hal to, to Kyle was like in your experience there. Uh, well, it was fast. That's, yeah. uh, that's the first thing that occurs to me. Uh, because it was bits and pieces of the story have been told at various times, and you know I'm not sure what what people have heard and what they haven't. But um, the you know the previous uh, the previous writer Jerry Jones actually had a an issue 48, 49, and 50 plotted and I'm pretty sure written out uh, for Green Lantern before they decided to go in a different direction and not use those issues and bring me in. So pretty much when I was offered the job and they explained what they wanted, I, you know, I thought about it for at least a week, I think, (laughs) and then, you know, decided to to go ahead with it. So, you know, immediately upon taking it, we were late uh, because some of the previous issues had already been solicited. uh, So those solicitations had to be canceled and the the new issues were, were resolicited. So, you know, essentially I wrote uh, my versions of 48, 49 and 50 kind of all at the same time so that all three art teams uh, on the respective issues could get could get moving. Um, that's why there are three artists for those issues. Uh, everything was being drawn at the same time, um, and you know, and in retrospect, certainly doing that doing that switch from from Hal to Kyle, or, or really those those issues were about moving Hal off stage. Um, you know, three issues, one of them being double sized, is really. Uh, for my money, not enough room to tell that story. But you know, you played the card. You play the cards you're dealt. Uh, so we we did what we could with it. I mean, if you know, if that kind of story was told today, you know, it'd be a 36 part miniseries with 16 tie-ins. Was DC's decision to uh, move Hal Jordan off stage was that a, a financial decision? Were sales waning on the Hal Jordan title, or was it just you know shaking things up? You know, the God's honest truth is most things in comics are a financial decision. You know, ultimately the publishers are in are in the business to to make money, and not that that's the you know that that's the only concern, but um, you know sales are sales are king, and if something's not selling, the you know the impulse on the publisher side, meaning the editorial side, is to try something different, is to try something to fix it, and that was certainly the case with with Green Lantern, and the, you know the feeling at DC was that. Uh, there wasn't enough interest in the book. Uh, sales weren't what they wanted them to be. So they decided to do something, you know, in, in this case, fairly radical. Uh, and and at the time, uh, fairly permanent. It certainly seemed that at the time. Now, early on in that run, uh, like issue 54, there was the, the infamous, you know, woman in the refrigerator, which, you know, has spawned a, a whole website and, and a, a whole uh, terminology for, for certain circumstances in comic books. Oh, really? Nobody's ever, nobody's ever mentioned that to me. <laughs> <laughs> so when you, uh, when you wrote that, when you wrote that scene where, you know, Kyle Rayner's girlfriend winds up the, the victim of one of his villains and, you know, gets stuffed into the, to the refrigerator, were you thinking that that was going to be such a big deal? Were you thinking that that's going to draw so much commentary? Well, the idea behind that was that 
I wanted to do something that people would remember. Um, right. You know, sometimes you exceed beyond your expectations, apparently. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I really wanted something that was going to make an impression, that was going to have a lasting impression on the readers. You know, and I wanted to do something that was really kind of kind of brutal to to show that this wasn't, you know, just standard operating procedure. Uh, that this wasn't a, you know, kind of a, a typical comic book uh, hero-villain confrontation. You know, I wanted the, the audience to realize that the um, the hero was in way over his head and the villain was a really sick bastard. You know, I, I, I'm fond of saying that, the you know, you, you know that the bad guys are bad when they do something bad. To me, I came up with what was a fairly horrific end for uh, his girlfriend. Uh, and we knew, I mean, I knew that she was going to uh, end up dead from the first time she appeared in a panel. I mean, the, the, the thought was always that um, that getting the power ring was going to be fun and games uh, for Kyle initially, because why wouldn't it be? It's like winning the lottery. You know, it's 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 the best thing ever until uh, cold, hard reality comes and, uh, you know, slaps you in the face or stuffs your girlfriend in the refrigerator. Now, you know, in terms of uh, topping yourself, what other major appliances might you stuff a character into? Um, you know, if I had my uh, if I had my druthers, it, you know, that would have been it. Uh, we sort of revisited the idea in uh, my last six issue arc to wind up the, the third volume of Green Lantern. Um, and because of some changes in the way editorial wanted to portray that, it didn't quite end up the way I wanted it to be. But for for better or worse, it's remembered. So I guess uh, better better to be infamous than forgotten. Now, did you see the uh, Blackest Night book where they kind of retold a little bit of that? No, I actually haven't. A number of people have, have mentioned it to me, but... You know, the guy's on the street says the, the shackles from my desk don't extend as far as the neighborhood comic store. So I don't actually get there that often. Well, you know, we, we talked about it in an earlier podcast that, you know, that they showed more of what happened. You know, they showed the, the violence, I guess. The the scene, you know, that's depicted in, in you know, uh, 54 is just a little glimpse into the refrigerator. And in the, the recent Blackest Night book, they just kind of show a whole lot more. And it just really kind of, for me, kind of ruined that moment. You know, it just didn't seem nearly as dramatic as just seeing Kyle's response and what your mind is telling you what happened to have shoved her in the refrigerator. Most often in comics, what you don't show is more powerful than what you do show. Um, right. And and to me, proof of that is that the the original version of that page had the refrigerator door mostly open. When Kyle opens the door, you could see that his that his girlfriend was stuffed in there upside down, uh, obviously quite dead. And the uh, the comic code, which was still uh, which was still in place at that time, had a fit and said mm-hmm. that we couldn't we couldn't show it. It was it was too uh, too violent, too brutal, even though we had, actually hadn't shown anything. And because of the comics code, we had to have that panel redone so that the door was, you know, two thirds closed and it can only glimpse a bit of her body in there. Um, now of course, the, you know, the comics codes censorship of that scene made it that much more horrific in people's minds because I've had, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of people come up to me with the assumption that she had been cut into pieces and put in there, uh, you know, like somebody cold cuts. Uh, and that, <laughs> That was never the intention, and the, and the first person that ever said that to me, I was kind of dumbfounded. And I thought, well, well, how would you get that out of that scene? And then going back to look at it, you know, because you're looking at an upside-down body that doesn't quite, you know, isn't quite oriented as as you would expect, yeah, you can extrapolate that from the scene. So, you know, censorship wins again. There's that website out there, the Women in Refrigerators website. You know, what do you think about the all the commentary that spawned up, you know, after the fact? I, I said my piece on the on the uh, WIR website, and and that's kind of my, you know, that's kind of what I what I think. And, and the short version is, yeah, you know why? Oftentimes, the, the helpless women, the defenseless women, quote-unquote, are the ones that, that pay the price is because most of the stars of comic books are male heroes and you can't kill them off or you're, you know, or you're cutting your throat sales-wise. 
so the ones who end up paying the price are their uh, significant others uh, very often. I, you know, I, it, certainly there are other instances where, where yeah, you do kind of question, you know, if there's a misogynistic undertone or something like that. Uh, but, uh, you know, to my mind, it was, it was, that wasn't the intention at all. But ultimately, you know, people read into this kind of stuff what they want. If, you know, if somebody's, uh, if somebody has a uh, a beef about the way women are treated in comics, they're going to trot that out every time as their example. Whether it's there or not, whether it was intended or not, people bring to the table whatever their baggage is, uh, right or wrong or indifferent. It's uh, you know it's just the way that that the stuff gets interpreted, and I kind of feel like once once it leaves my hands, once it's it's out of uh, out of my hands, I really can't control what, I mean, I can, I can control what my intent was, but I can't control what people uh, glean from it. So I, I tend not to spend too much time worrying about it. Now you wrote uh, Green Lantern after writing Silver Surfer? Yeah, Surfer was my first gig in comics. Uh, oh, period. I really, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was uh, the, the um, my scripts for Silver Surfer were the first thing, first comics I ever wrote. I mean, uh, period. No, you know, no small press stuff or, or pitches or anything like that, which, you know, which is always the worst thing that you can tell somebody when they say, how did you break into comics? Well, my friend Jim Starlin uh, co-wrote an issue of Silver Surfer with me and, and they printed it. Uh, you know, that's that's the absolute wrong answer that, that people don't want to hear. Although, I did, you know, you know I, I did have one guy say to me, well, can I be friends with Jim Starlin too? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, I really enjoyed your run on Silver Surfer. Oh, thank you. You know, it was very much on the job training for me. Um, you know, Jim showed me the ropes and and really introduced me to the to the form. Uh, and then I was, you know, I think we wrote three issues together. Three, yeah, three issues together. And then I was kind of uh, on my own to to sink or swim. And thankfully, I've been doing it for twenty years. Uh, and I don't, you know, I've never really. Uh, had a had a day without work in that time, so um, I realize I'm incredibly fortunate to have had the opportunity and to to have had things work out like they did. But I, you know, I look back on the surfer stuff, and uh, it was very much on job training. I was I was learning to do the job uh, as I was doing the job. So was uh, writing Silver Surfer a, a a good prep for writing Green Lantern in that the style of stories, you know, the space stories and whatnot. Um, ultimately not really. I mean, I thought it, when DC initially called me about Green Lantern and they said, you know, we'd like you to take over Green Lantern monthly. And this was, this was after, um, I had written a few, uh, Green Lantern quarterly stories and, you know, kind of dipped my foot into that pool already. Um, you know, initially I thought, oh, cool. You know, geez, I love house costume and, and the, you know, the other space, space opera thing is something that I'm. I'm used to them and, and I'm into, and then of course you had a shoe drop and it was like, Oh, here's what you're going to do. Um, so I mean, ultimately introducing Kyle was, was to a large extent, my version of a Marvel type hero in the DC universe, mm-hmm. um, you know, a more humanistic, uh, feet of clay hero, uh, and you know, very obviously, much more of an everyman type hero, kind of out of the Spider-Man mold, uh, out of the Peter Parker mold. Because uh, I, you know, when I was a kid, that the balance of being a superhero and dealing with, you know, Doc Ock and the Green Goblin, as well as worrying about, you know, trying to get a date and paying his rent and. Uh, you know, doing his job for the, uh, I almost said Daily Planet, um, the yeah. Daily Bugle. Uh, I liked all that stuff. It made Peter Parker seem more more like a real person to me. Um, and I and I think because the uh, the DC Silver Age heroes really came from a uh, from an era just a few years, you know, a few years before the Marvel heroes hit, um, they were very much more, uh, you know, the, the lantern jawed kind of stock hero types, uh, mm-hmm. that doesn't make them better or worse. It just makes them different. Um, so I, you know, I grew up on, 
on Marvel books, really. So given the opportunity to create a brand new hero, that's, that's where my tendencies naturally lie. Naturally lie. I'm, um, I've used the, you know, I've used the example before of, uh, you know, I much prefer a, you know, a character like Cary Grant and North by Northwest, who's just a regular guy pulled into circumstances beyond his control. Uh, you know, an, an ordinary man in extraordinary circumstances is much more my preference than somebody like Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, who, you know, is is so impossibly good at everything. To me, it's not that interesting. Uh, if, you, if, if your protagonist is really good and really skilled at everything that he needs to do the job, well, it's not that much of a challenge. It's just kind of, you know, by rote events unfolding. Uh, you know, I'm as a reader and as a writer, I'm much more interested in a guy that's weighing over his head and has to suck it up and figure out a way to do the job, even though he's not equipped for it. When you were creating Kyle Rayner for Green Lantern, what was the what made you think of of making a graphic artist a superhero? You know, it just it just seemed like a natural a natural fit for a guy that was going to have, uh, you know, this, this ring on his finger that basically would let him visualize and make real anything that came into his mind. You know, I wanted a guy with a, with an overactive imagination. I wanted a guy who had a visual component to, uh, his personality. Um, and, and also in in a lot of ways, I, I wanted to make sure that, that Kyle was not Hal. Um, and and that was just more from a standpoint of of wanting to make sure that we were doing something different than had come before. Uh, not that I found uh, you know not that I found anything wrong with Hal's character. I just felt like if the decision was to uh, take him off the playing field as Green Lantern, that we shouldn't just bring Hal Light in as Green Lantern. Uh, mm-hmm. We should bring in somebody as completely different as possible uh, because, you know, if you're going to make a change, you might as well make a a wholesale change rather than just, you know, getting a few degrees off from what you had before. Well, like I said, Kyle's just my my favorite Green Lantern character. And, you know, I apologize for taking us down such a long Green Lantern road here. But, uh, you know, how often do I get to talk to the creator of of my favorite character? Uh, Last question. I'm fully aware that, you know, that's the one that's going to be on my tombstone. So, uh. (laughs) Last question relating to Green Lantern. Other than Hal and Kyle, favorite Green Lantern in the core? Um, oh boy. Uh, other than Hal and Kyle, um, you know, Tony Harris and I created a, a Green Lantern named Ash, uh, that I'm really fond of. And we only did like one 10 page story with him. Uh, and I know he's appeared in some of the, uh, in some of the issues since, but, uh, it would actually be kind of cool to, to go back and do another story with Ash, uh, with Tony, obviously it's something that, you know, Tony and I around on Twitter, uh, now and again is that maybe we should go back and do that. I, I, I honestly have to say, I'm not familiar with Ash. Uh, he was a, uh, he was a green lantern on a planet of vampires. So he was essentially a green lantern vampire hunter. What blue skinned guy? Uh, yeah, like blue, bluish purple skin, and yeah, uh, Tony okay. put some real cool tattoos on his face and on his forearms. Um, you know, even though we only, uh, like I said, did a you know ten or twelve page story or whatever it was, uh, right. it, I had a lot of fun doing it, and obviously working with Tony's great. Now that Aaron <laughs> <laughs> has exhausted himself, <laughs> <laughs> go take your nap, Aaron. No, that's right, I'm tired. Now. <laughs> um, you know, and, and there's so much work you did before you went to Top Cow. You know that you know there's so many questions that I have, but you know, right now, you know, I'm loving the Top Cow stuff. And you know, how did you come into the Top Cow universe? You know, how, you know, were you approached? Is it, you know, did you come to them? How did how did that relationship form? Um, when I left CrossGen, uh, you know, I the uh, actually the uh, Chief financial officer was was one of my buddies down there at the company, and uh, he kind of gave me the high sign that 
you know, things were not well and that there were going to be rough seas ahead uh, shortly before he left the company. Um, and, you know, word of advice, when the chief financial officer leaves, start putting your life jacket on because <laughs> things are going to get a little hairy. Um, you know, so when I when I finally decided that uh, that I didn't want to stick around for the uh, for the bitter end, um, you know, I I left staff and uh, resumed uh, resumed my freelance career. And the editor in chief of Top Cow at the time was uh, Jim McLaughlin, who uh, was a buddy of mine and still is. Uh, but I had you know I had met him through uh, him working at Wizard. And uh, and him being involved in what is now Hero Initiative and was then called Actor. Uh, so you know, Jim and I were buddies, and virtually the day that I left, Jim called me at home and said, "What do you want to do?" Uh, which was a very nice, uh, very nice landing pad to have. So I initially did a, a four-issue Darkness arc, and then a uh, Darkness one-shot. I think it was a painted one-shot set in the. Uh, golden age of piracy and then after that uh you know jim said what else do you want to do and i must sound like a broken record because i tell the story all the time you know jim said what do you want to do and i said i want to do magdalena and he said yeah that's great how about you do witchblade <laughs> and i said uh well okay we can talk about that you know and and you know his his take on it was you know, Witchblade needed some fixing, so uh, they wanted me to concentrate on that. And um, I think we kind of did the deal over uh, sushi and sake in Orlando uh, not long after that, though I don't remember completely all aspects of that evening. Uh, I think there was more sake than sushi. So, you know, I took on the book with the expectation that let's, you know, let's see how this goes and um, was up front with Top Cow about you know, look, if you guys, if you guys want stories that are excuses for clothes to fall off, I'm not your guy. Um, and I'm not offended by that, but that's not me to their credit. And to this day, uh, they've been perfectly fine with, you know, moving away from, from that aspect of the book. And it's certainly something that, that I haven't, uh, revisited at all, except maybe in an ironic fashion once in a while. Um, and I've been doing doing Witchblade for six years now, or five and a half, something like that. Yeah. So it, it's obviously been a very comfortable fit for me. And then as you know, as Witchblade uh, uh, developed into a into a you know a nice regular gig, um, I, I expanded to uh, to other things along the way. Uh, Jim McLaughlin left the company and. Various people have been in that editor's chair since, and now it's it's Philip Sablick and Phil Smith. But you know, I've gotten along with everybody great, and they've treated me wonderfully. Uh, you know, I really can't ask for anything more. They give me their toys to play with and uh, let me do some crazy things with them. So it's it's been a very rewarding uh, relationship. You know, it's uh it's funny that you mentioned the the sexuality piece, and I don't want to harp on that because I mean, Lord knows, you know, it's been harped on everywhere uh, on the internet. You know, is is that Top Cow unfortunately is still trying to overcome that stigma of being, you know, sexy books, and it, you know, I mean, there's of course, you know, there are sexy women in them, but I mean, that's it's they're not TNA books. They're well written, well drawn books. You know, it's got a cohesive universe with great continuity, and uh, you know. It, I, then whenever we talk about top cow books, you know, it's something I always address, you know, because that's the first thing I hear, you know, and it's, it's just, unfortunately, I guess a product of when it started back in comics. Well, I think, um, you know, I, I look, obviously everything that you're saying was true at one point, um, yeah. you know, and I tend to point out that, um, well, you know, those stories when Batman was kind of like a boy scout and he fought space aliens all the time, that's still like he is, <laughs> right? Um, you know, people go, Oh yeah, I, I see what your point is. I mean, yes, the books had, had a, had a large tits and ass quotient for a while. Uh, that's, uh, that's apparent. And, you know, still once in a while, there's a, there's a sexy cover that, uh, you know, I, I know this comes as a shock to people, but the predominantly male audience of comics like, likes to look at sexy women. But, you know, I think there's a vast audience out there that, is judging 
the book or what they think the books are on a uh, you know on predispositions that are ten years old, uh, and I, I've I've yet to have anybody that we've handed the book to or talked somebody into giving it a try that has said, oh this is this is that you know same TNA crap that you guys always did, and I was right. You know every person that has actually ventured beyond the covers to find out what the stories and the characters are like comes away with a completely different perspective. But uh, ultimately, it's, it's a one reader at a time kind of deal. You, you know, you can't, uh, you can't talk somebody into it without showing them and giving them, uh, you know, giving them the first story arc or something like that to, to find the proof in the pudding. You, you know, it's, it's, it's much easier for people to get over that, that, uh, that wrong preconception if they've actually, you know, read the damn thing. You started with which... On on Witchblade, if I remember correctly, it, the Witch Hunt arc is that the name of the the arc? I think. <laughs> yeah, it was issue uh, issue eighty was my first issue, and you know the idea was that uh, I wanted to jump in and do a you know do an arc, a six issue arc that was that was going to be a ground floor read and establish everything that the readers needed to know about Sarah and the Witchblade. And, and also be a big enough story that it was worth six issues. You know, it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't two guys in business suits sitting at a conference table talking for four issues. Um, you know, at, at some point that became kind of cool to do in comics, and I, 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 I missed that memo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Brief aside to our listeners, um, you can get the trade paperback of that arc for $5 for six comic books. So just putting that out there. Yeah, I, I tell people that they can they can go get six issues for five bucks or one twenty two page issue for four. Yep. See, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's a deal. <laughs> um, so you know, you started the the witch hunt arc, and you know, as things progressed, and I, you know, I, I have to admit, I didn't actually pick up start picking up uh, your run on Witchblade until right around the Firstborn arc, I, I think. Um, and I, I think you know it that was right before. Um, or maybe right after. Uh, I'm gonna probably butcher his name. Stepan Sayich. Oh, you're you're closer than most. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's uh, Stepan Sayich. Uh, but yeah, I, a lot of a lot of times it's just easier to call him Steve. <laughs> call him Steve <laughs> for the rest of the show. Um, you know, when I think you know around when he started on the on the title, and you know, I, I think it even said "New Reader Friendly" on the cover or something like that. So like, oh, um, I think that was probably 116, which was his first uh, his first regular issue, and and the idea behind that was, we, you know, we knew that that was going to be, uh, you know, a jumping on point, and again, the idea was to make it as new reader friendly as possible, so that if somebody had had never read Witchblade, had never read a Top Cow book, had no idea about any of this stuff going in, that the issue gave you all the answers you needed. I think I remember what inspired me to pick up the title was I read an article online about how you and Steve <laughs> uh, <laughs> were signed onto the title through issue 150, or at least had plans to go through 150. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a decision we made fairly early on because the you know the partnership was working great. He wanted to stay, I wanted to stay, um, and we just thought, well, you know, what the hell? Why don't we just tell people? here's what you're going to get for the next three years. And, you know, that's, and I liked that idea. You know, it seemed like, you know, I can buy this and if it's good, that means I can get that consistency on a monthly basis. So, you know, and, and I have, you know, I've loved the title ever since and I started picking up the trades of previous arcs that you, that you've written, you know, so when you started on the title or, you know, I'm pretty sure it probably wasn't when you started on the title, but was it around that time that you kind of, formulated the idea that there was this larger storyline involving the 13 artifacts and all of that? You know, it was, it was kind of an organic process. Um, and you know, it's not like I set out to say, okay, what's the, you know, what's the underlying mythology here? What's the, you know, what's the larger picture? Um, my chief interest was in going in and, you know, telling stories about Sarah and making those stories compelling from a character point of view. Uh, cause I, you know, I think the best stories come from character. They're not plot driven, they're character driven. And 
I felt like if, if people cared about what happened to Sarah, they would come back every month. Um, you know, it wasn't just going to be, um, you know, eye candy visuals. It was going to be, you know, hopefully dramatic stuff that, that had lasting effects on the character and we could make some changes to the character um, rather than just kind of having the illusion of change, which is what you have in most comics. Um, so as we got into that and as Top Cow gave me a fairly free hand to, to explore some of that, the, the pieces of the universe started to show themselves, you know, the, the relationship, uh, Sarah's relationship with the darkness and, uh, what the Angelus was, what the, you know, specifically what the Witchblade actually was, um, because we were coming up on, I believe the 10th anniversary of Witchblade's publication, first publication with issue 92. And I felt like, well, geez, after 10 years, shouldn't we tell people what this damn thing is? Because uh, it had never really been established in concrete terms what the specifics were, you know, what this thing actually was. There were hints and, you know, hints and secrets and, and uh, you know, various uh, pieces of breadcrumbs along the trail, but never, you know, it didn't really lead anywhere. So I wanted to uh, finally establish what the Witchblade was, where it came from, uh, and through doing that, it led to um, a lot of the other stories and and the broader uh, the broader concepts of the thirteen artifacts and and the relationship between the Witchblade, the Darkness, and the Angelus. Now, I have a question actually about the thirteen artifacts and um, uh, kind of a geeky question, I guess, because you know I read. The artifacts, free comic book day issue artifacts number zero, you know, that got everybody ready for it. And uh, that was my first inclination that Tom Judge um, from the Paul Jenkins series universe back in early 2000s, late 90s, um, was going to be involved in the crossover. And, uh, you know, I remember loving that series. So I broke it out, reread it, you know, still love it, actually. It's still great stuff. Um and uh, you know, in fact, that it features early art by Clayton Crane, just sure. you know, and you know, he he was you know great at the time too. Um, so you know, at the time, it was introduced that there were six artifacts. Now, maybe you know, I, of course, I jumped out of the Top Cow universe at some point, but is that something? You know, was the introduction of the thirteen artifacts something that you brought to the table, or did that kind of progress after you know, sometime between universe and and your start on the title? I think I I think I finally picked the number because you know God's honest truth I think there you know there were six there were eleven you know there were various numbers that were shown mm-hmm. and various artifacts that were named um, so I think we sat down and figured out that like ten of them had been named or maybe eleven <laughs> uh, not all of which had been shown but there were you know hints and hints of uh, you know, this larger picture. So, you know, uh, I just went for the obvious and said, make it 13. <laughs> uh, and that's obviously a number of years ago. And now we're, we're paying all that off. But again, that was kind of the, the, the organic nature of, of this, you know, we sat down to figure it out when it became necessary. Uh, it's not like there was a, um, you know, there was a universal Bible, uh, handed down to me with, with all the secrets in it. Um, it, it was really a matter of uh, doing the research, telling stories, and seeing what questions needed to be naturally answered, and and coming up with with answers for those that you know that will now uh, form really for, kind of form the backbone of the artifact series. Now, you know, Top Cow has always kind of had this shared universe thing. You know, um, you know, as far as crossovers, you know. Uh, when Fathom was published, you know, Tomb Raider, you know, the characters would cross over into, you know, Witchblade, things like that. Um, but you've you've done a, a ton of work in building this organic continuity, um, th- th- this larger mythology to the universe. And, you know, uh, to his credit as well, you know, I know Phil Hester, you know, with his work on the Darkness title has, you know, been involved in that as well. It's kind of funny because you actually write three titles uh, featuring strong female characters and featuring three of the three of the artifacts um, you know Witchblade uh, the Angelus and the Magdalena uh, you know Angelus I think is on issue three 
uh, as of the time we're speaking right now. Uh, Magazine. Uh, yeah, three is three is out. Four is almost done, um, and you know that will all finish up before Artifacts One hits. And uh, yeah, and Magdalena number one just came out, uh, and that is a miniseries, correct? Uh, not if we can help it. Oh, that, that would be great news, actually. Uh, we, you know, we have eight issues of Magdalena planned, and everybody involved would like nothing more than to just keep going with it. So uh, it all depends on on what the sales are like. Um, so far, the response has been really good, and the first issue sold out. So signs are good, but uh, I think uh, I think some really wise person said that everything in comics come down, comes down to sales about 20 minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, Ron, I, I read Magdalena number one today uh, to prep for the interview, and I have to tell you, I, that, that book was awesome. I, I thoroughly enjoyed that book. Uh, it scratches me right where I itch. I, I like that whole the the religious history and you know conspiracies and whatnot. Um, you seem to have a real talent for that. Is that a is that a, uh, a an appetite you brought with you, or or is that something that you learned having started up on on Witchblade and just kind of grew that story from there? Well, you know, like I said, Magdalena was was really the first book that I asked for at Top Cow. It just, you know, it took five or six years to get around to it. Um, it, it to me, it's a, it's a terrific character design and it's a, it's a great concept because it, it, uh, gives the character a purpose. Um, you know, it's, uh, to me, the Avengers and the JLA kind of sit around and wait for somebody to attack them at their headquarters. Right. Uh, Magdalena has a job. You know, the Catholic Church tells her to go out and take care of things. Uh, so there's always fodder for new stories. Um, in a lot of ways, that's one of the things that I like about Sarah in Witchblade is that she has a job as well. You know, she's a cop. She's naturally brought into, uh, into conflict with, uh, you know, criminals and the supernatural. And, you know, there's, there's a uh, constant forward motion to the story. Um, in the case of Magdalena, it's, uh, that hits a lot of the buttons that I really dig. Um, you know, the, the supernatural, uh, history in, in general, um, you know, folklore uh, and, you know, and I, I'm also fascinated by the Catholic church, even though I wasn't raised Catholic, um, right. the, the pomp and circumstance of it all. More from a non-religious aspect, from a uh, from from the standpoint of of the historical uh, and the political uh, aspects of the Catholic Church since its founding, you know, I find really interesting. Um, and plus, you know, all that all that ornate stuff is like a really great backdrop for a comic. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I I. Uh, uh, you know, I've kind of said before that Magdalene is, in some ways, you know, Hellboy with a really good rack. <laughs> <laughs> and then you add on top of that the, you know, the the sort of sometimes insidious, sometimes uh, uh, blessed nature of the Catholic Church, and to me, that's a really interesting stew. And it, it, it's funny, you know, the. The way that your uh, your universe ties together, you know, I mean, Witchblade organically moved into the Angelus, and you know, uh, the Magdalena has been weaving in and out of of Witchblade since you were on the title. So, you know, until until she finally got her own series. Um, now, the question uh, that I have for you is. You're uh, you're involved in Velocity. See, we can we brought it back to Velocity eventually. <laughs> Very exciting. <laughs> um, you know. Thus far, um, you know there there have been appearances by Hunter Killer and Cyberforce, brief appearances in like Witchblade and Darkness, but for the most part, it's almost like they exist separately. According to Wikipedia, which is about as reliable as you know anything else, the Catholic Church. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're potentially involved in a cyber uh, Cyberforce relaunch as well. Yeah, I I wouldn't sleep if I was involved in a Cyberforce relaunch. Oh, okay. Well, uh, there you go. Just not enough, there's just not enough hours in the day. I mean, that uh, I I know what's going on with with Cyberforce, and they're not ready to announce it yet. Um, but I can say that at this time, I am not involved with it. Uh, 
even though I, you know, I dig Cyberforce, I'm especially fond of Velocity, um, there's more than enough on my plate to keep me occupied. Uh, they're, uh, you know, my editors are, are already uh, drumming their fingers uh, impatiently <laughs> for me to hand in stuff. I don't need to put anything else uh, on the docket. Well, you know, you know, but you are involved in Velocity, and you know, are we going to see those characters, you know, in artifacts, or is you know, are, are, is that still, are those universes still going to technically be coexistent, but not together? No, you're. It's this is a this is absolutely a, a universe-wide crossover, and while it's you know, it's obviously more uh, more concerned with the supernatural aspect of the top 10 universe. I, I, I think most of us that, that, uh, you know, apply our trade there kind of feel like the, the, the universe for top cow has two distinct sides to it. Uh, the supernatural side and the sort of sci-fi tech side, uh, which would of course include, you know, cyber force and Aphrodite and hunter killer, uh, I've been, you know, most of my playground has been the supernatural side, but one of the things I really like about the Top Gun universe is it does have those two, those two flavors. Mm-hmm. It's not just a, uh, it's not just one, you know, it's not just one dish at the buffet table. There's a, there are a couple of different things that you can come through and get. And, um, I think it's actually, I, I, I like when they rub up against each other. Mm-hmm which sounds kind of sexy, actually. Um, <laughs> you know, I like when, uh, you know, the, the recently concluded Aphrodite guest appearance in, in Witchblade or mm-hmm. um, when the hunter-killer character showed up in Witchblade for a few scenes. I, I think it's cool when they kind of brush up against each other, um, but not too often. I think, you know, familiarity takes some of that magic away. So uh, if they were... You know, if they were constantly crossing over with each other, I think it wouldn't seem quite so cool. But because there's a because they're kept on a leash, and these characters aren't interacting all the time, uh, I think it. I think when they do interact, it, it kind of means something a little, a little more. So, uh, you know, I was all for getting uh, getting those characters into artifacts, even though artifacts was supernaturally based and very much a story that has, uh, has Jackie and Sarah at the at the center of it. So tell us the, the basic core concept of artifacts, you know, which blade has been leading up to this, you know, um, I'm assuming, uh, certain, uh, elements of the Angelus are probably leading up to it as well, since the, it's ending around the same time that artifacts is starting. Yeah. The Angelus actually Tom judges, uh, first appearance in quite a while was in Angelus three. So, mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of, I mean, my, my general theory on, on continuity and crossovers and guest appearances and all that is that, you know, they should, uh, they should add to the story obviously, but it shouldn't be a situation where you're expecting the reader to come in knowing all of this history and knowing all of this continuity. I'm like the last guy who is in favor of, you know, these navel gazing continuity stories that just, you know, that just play to the crowd that's been reading the book for 20 years. Uh, to me that, you know, preaching to the converted is the easiest damn thing you can do in comics. Um, you know, if you just write stories for the audience you already have, uh, obviously the audience you already have really loves it, but it doesn't do anything to, uh, break down the barriers and bring in more people. So, uh, in any of this stuff, I try to make sure that the guest appearances or the crossovers um, make sense uh, story-wise and are as welcoming to you know a a Cyberforce fan who's not reading Witchblade but wants to jump on, or a Witchblade fan that's not familiar with Aphrodite Nine or Four or any number any other number we might stick in there. <laughs> so it's it's. Um, you know, it's a, it's a universal crossover in every sense of the word. Uh, but again, if you know, if the audience isn't familiar with with any of this stuff uh, between Artifact Zero and Issue One, you're going to get everything you need to know. So you've uh, you've got Michael Broussard 
as your first artist on the on the artifacts uh, crossover, as well as uh, backup artists uh, for the or you will be uh, doing two page origin stories uh, of each artifact in the back of uh, the issues. Is that what I understand? Yeah, I was. That was something I was really. Uh, I was really adamant about and kind of pushed for is that, uh, I, you know, I don't know. Again, like I'm not a huge continuity fan. I don't, I don't want the audience to come in feeling like they should have been, you know, they should have already read this book or that book or, you know, this trade paperback from 10 years ago. And another, and another way to get information in front of people are these two page origins, which, um, you know, which are, I think to me, nice little bonus stories at the end. Uh, in much the same way that the uh, the DC Origin two pagers appeared in in fifty two, and I think a couple other places, uh, the you know the, the trade paperback of which sits on my desk, just because there are you know a bunch of neat little uh, neat little story nuggets there, uh, and you can also get guys like Mark Silvestri and and uh, Dale Keown to come in and do two pages for you whereas their schedules might not permit them to do an entire issue. Uh, it's a way to kind of roll out the big guns without uh, without destroying anybody's uh, overall schedule. I know you can't obviously tell us who uh, the next artist after Michael is. I know it hasn't been announced yet. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of noticed scheduling-wise that, uh, you know, it was, uh, like we mentioned before, your run on Witchblade goes to 150, Artifacts is 13 issues. They seem like they'll be around the same time, pending any unforeseen delays. Should I should I read into that at all, or do you have plans past 150 for Witchblade? Uh, I, you know, assuming everything uh, goes the way we think it's going to go, I, I actually plan on being on Witchblade for a a good bit longer than than 150 because uh, Steve Bond and I, or you know, Steve as you know him, uh, <laughs> and I have, uh, you know, realized, we sat down and, and realized we actually have a hell of a lot more stories to tell uh, than will fit between now and issue 150. Uh, there's a lot more material that we want to get to before, uh, you know, before we're done. So, you know, as long as he's in, I'm in, and as long as I'm in, he's in. So, um as long as Top Cow will have us, we're going to stick around. That's fantastic. And, you know, we're we're really excited for the Artifacts crossover. I know I definitely am. Um, Absolutely. You know, it, it looks really exciting, you know, and, you know, even though it's new reader friendly, I love the callbacks to people who have been involved in the, you know, who've been reading the Top Cow universe for a while, like the Tom Judge appearance in The Angelus. And I, I'm th- when I saw his character, I just, uh, you know, it was, it was a total geek moment for me because I know he uh, he died right before your run on Witchblade started. Um, and so I was just, I, I was very excited to see him and uh, just really excited for the upcoming crossover. Cool. Well, I, you know, I'm, it's music to my ears that you guys are excited for it. Obviously, you know, the, the, the idea here is really that um, it, if somebody has been reading my run on Witchblade for the last five or six years or, um, or, or what Phil's doing on the darkness or has maybe just jumped on with with Magdalena, uh, or has never, you know, set foot in the Top Gear universe before. Artifacts is the kind of the be all and end all. Uh, we want to make sure that the longtime readers uh, get the payoff that that they've been watching unfold for the last number of years, uh, and we want to make sure that new readers can come in and be introduced to the characters and the concepts. Uh, in a way that's comfortable and accessible and that, you know, they'll want to stick around afterwards. Uh, I mean, ultimately, that's the purpose of any big event comic is is twofold. It's to, you know, it's to pay off a big storyline, you know, something that's, that's bigger than uh, will comfortably fit in any of the monthly titles. Uh, and it's also to you know, to generate interest and hopefully get some people to stick around afterwards. So if we accomplish both of those goals, I think, you know, we're going to be a bunch of happy campers. Um, I mean, I know I'm, I'm having a ball so far and, and, uh, you know, working with Michael on the first four issues, uh, is great. I mean, there's the artwork that he's turned in so far is just spectacular and only a, 
only a little bit of it has has dribbled out there so far. Yeah, I mean, I, I love his stuff. You know, I, I he, he in such a short time in his run on the darkness uh, and unholy union before that, and you know, he, he's just progressed so far as an artist. And you know, I just I love his stuff. It's always been great, but it's definitely getting better. Well, so. you guys haven't seen anything yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when we just started discussing the discussing the story and you know we wanted to make make sure that there's a um you know kind of a big bang moment in in issue one something that uh makes readers both new and old kind of go oh my god i gotta you know i can't believe that just happened i gotta come back next month and see where this goes um and i i think we did that i mean it's there's a uh, there's a fairly drastic uh, scene in issue one that uh, hopefully uh, gets people excited for for what's to come. And no, I'm not going to tell you what it is. I was about to say, damn it! What if we <laughs> promise not to release this for a while? We'll just keep it between the three of us. Nobody else has to know. <laughs> you know, Ron. Thank you so much. I know you've had a, a rough day. You know, and uh, I know you're tired. So we really appreciate you taking some time out to talk with us. Oh no problem, guys. I'm I'm really happy to uh, to do it, and and very thankful for the interest. It was awesome chatting with you tonight, Ron. Yeah, yeah. Again, and uh, good luck with Magdalena and all of your books. And uh, you know, we're definitely looking forward to Artifacts, and hopefully, we can have you on again. Thanks, guys. Look to again soon. Definitely, absolutely. Thanks, Ron. Podcast theme music graciously provided by Mark Andrew Pope. For more information, visit markandrewpope.com. Funny Books with Aaron and Polly is a production of ideologyofmadness.com. No Spider-Man clones were harmed in the production of this podcast.